Today, uh, I'm excited that we get to continue in a series that we've been working through over the last few weeks called Battles and Blessings. And, uh, and if you've been on the journey of life, you know that life is full of both of them. And the danger that we find ourselves in sometimes is when we expect for certain seasons of life to only consist of one or the other. But as you get further down life, you realize that, that life is just full of battles and blessings. And the question for us is how do we, how do we live faithful lives in the midst of any circumstance. And so what we've been doing over the last few weeks is we've been looking at the life of a guy named Joshua. And uh, Joshua lived about 3,400 years ago. And, uh, and what is true about Joshua is that for some reason, some way or another, he, he learned to thrive in the battles and in the blessings of life. And so over the last few weeks, we've been, we've been looking at Joshua's life. And if you were here with us from the beginning, you know that we talked about the fact that Joshua grew up as a slave in Egypt. Uh, he was about 40 years old by the time that Moses came along and decided, had a vision to lead the people out of Egypt into the wilderness with a vision of eventually reaching the promised land uh, that, that had been promised to their people, to their ancestors. And part of the process of entering into the promised land was uh, sort of getting a diagnosis of what was happening uh, in the land of Canaan. And so when they get just outside the region of Canaan, uh, Moses identifies 12 leaders, one from each of the 12 tribes of Israel, and he sends them in as spies to bring back a report so that they can plan for how they're going to enter the land. And what was interesting about this whole process is that out of the 12 spies, only two came back with a good report, Caleb and Joshua. And they said, the land is beautiful, there are problems, but the size of those problems compared to our God do not match up. God will be so faithful, we can do this, let's enter in. And so they brought back a positive report. But the problem is that the other 10 spies said, we can't do this. There are giants in the land, and if we're basing our ability to get into the land on our capacity, uh, then it's not possible. And the problem, the challenge is that these 10 spies convinced everyone else that they couldn't do it. And so they chose not to enter the land, and because of their disobedience, they wandered in the wilderness for 40 years. For 40 years, they had no home. For 40 years, they couldn't lay roots. For 40 years, they never got settled. They just wandered year after year after year, struggling year after year. And then by the time most of the people in that generation had died off, God was preparing to bring about a new leader. And so right before Moses dies, he hands the baton of leadership over to a guy named Joshua. And, uh, and he begins to prepare for his leadership. And if you remember in week two, we talked about it. God told Joshua two things. He said, first, Joshua, I want you to know that I'm going to be with you. Though no, no matter where you go or what you do, I am going to be with you in the same way that I was with Moses. And he sort of comforted Joshua with that promise that, that you're not in this alone. When you take on leadership, you're not walking down this path by yourself. But then the second thing he told him is that even though I am with you, you're going to still need to be strong and courageous. And that's an interesting, interesting balance that God says, I'm going to be with you. But what God knew is that Joshua was going to still have to make tough decisions. Joshua was still going to be the one that has to stand out in the battlefield as he's leading the army and leading the troops in very diff difficult circumstances. And so he was preparing Joshua. He said, I am with you, but you need to know that it will still require strength and courage on your part to do what I'm calling you to do. And I think maybe that's a good reminder for us that just because maybe some of us in the room today identify as a follower of Jesus and maybe you're connected to God 
and you've read the Bible and you've grown up in church and you know that God is with you, but that does not mean that you do not face difficult seasons or difficult decisions or different, difficult moments in your life. And so Joshua takes on the mantle of leadership and, uh, and today I want to talk about learning how to see obstacles as opportunities. Obstacles as op opportunities. And so we're going to pick up in Joshua chapter 3 verse 1. Give me one second. I'm on the wrong message this morning. Okay. Let's take a guess. No. I did all that on the wrong message, by the way. So, so the Lord is with us this morning. The Lord is with us. Okay. All right. Never trust technology. Joshua chapter 3, verse 1. It says, early the next morning, Joshua and all the Israelites left Acacia Grove and arrived at the banks of the Jordan River, where they camped before crossing. And so we're told, kind of introduced to the scene right at the very beginning, that they were on the banks of the Jordan River, and they were on the, on the verge of fulfilling a promise that had been made to one of their ancestors named Abraham 500 years ago. And as we begin to kind of read through the passage, we learn a little bit more about the context of the passage. And one of the things that we know is that they were at the banks of the river during the harvest time. And because it was harvest time, it meant that the river was flowing a little bit heavier than normal. And we're told in a few verses that it actually was overflowing outside the bounds of the normal river lines. And so uh, we, we know that it was roughly about 100 feet wide, um, at least 10 feet deep. And that the challenging part is that there was a strong, a strong current. The other day, uh, I, I, start, I thought, I should, I should look into getting into fishing. And so I started looking up all the good fishing spots in California, which if you know anything about fishermen, is that they don't tell you where the good fishing spots are. <laughs> so looking on a blog is not really uh, a strategic way to actually find a good fishing spot. But uh, I started looking online and I read several blogs and the spot that kept uh, coming up in like the top three fishing spots in California was the Delta, uh, the Delta River. And, uh, and, and so I started reading about the Delta River and I found out that the Delta is actually really dangerous. And this is the reason why is because what happens is you have people like me who are not from that area and you're looking for a good fishing spot so you go fishing, you get in the water and then all of a sudden you get swept away by the current. And what's so deceiving about the Delta is that it looks calm on the surface but it's strong underneath. And so every year you have reports of people drowning in the Delta because they get in and they don't realize how strong the current is. Well, the same thing was true about certain parts of the Jordan River. In 1854, there was an account of this expert swimmer that tried to swim across the 100-foot spans of the Jordan River, and she couldn't make it because the current was, was so strong. And so as we read in this passage, we begin to realize that the Jordan River was this obstacle that God was going to use to build the people's faith. It was this obstacle that he, that he was going to use to build the faith, and this is how, this is how they prepared. Verse 2. It says, three days later, the Israelite officers went through the camp, giving these instructions to the people. They said, when you see the Levitical priests carrying the Ark of the Covenant of the Lord your God, move out from your positions and follow them. Since you have never, never traveled this way before, they will guide you. Stay about a half a mile behind them, keeping a clear distance between you and the Ark. Make sure that you do not come any closer. So we read 
that sort of their first plan of attack is to begin to disseminate the plan to the rest of the people. So you have the Israelite officers go to each of the 12 tribes and they let them know. They say, hey, this is the plan. The plan is that you are to stay in your positions until you see the Levitical priests carrying the Ark of the Covenant. When you see them, allow for about a half a mile distance between you and them and then you start following them. And you may be asking the question, well, who are the Levitical priests? Uh, the Levites was, was one of the 12 tribes of Israel and they were all descendants from Levi, who was one of the 12 sons of Jacob. And what was interesting about the Levites is that they had this special calling on their life. If you were a Levite, that means that your life was set aside as sort of a spiritual influencer in the community of the Israelites. And, and so they carried out several different functions. One of the main functions of a Levite was to carry out the ceremonial process of worship uh, in the temple. But one of the other unique things that they had the privilege of doing was carrying the Ark of the Covenant, and this was a big deal because this was the most important prized possession of the people of, of Israel. And it was important to them for a few reasons. Number one, it was, uh, it was expensive. This chest was layered in gold. It had all these ornate designs, beautiful statues uh, uh, attached to it. It was this valuable piece of, of furniture. It was beautifully designed by the best uh, designers in all, of, in all of Israel. But it was also important because of what it carried. It carried these iconic pieces of, of cultural and spiritual history for the people of Israel, one of which was the Ten Commandments, the tablets of the Ten Commandments. But maybe the most important reason why the Ark of the Covenant was so important was because for the people of Israel, it was a symbolism of God's presence in their life. And so when it talks about the Ark of the Covenant leading the way, it was really this picture of, of God saying, I'm going to go before you. I'm going to go before you in this battle. And as you begin to read through Joshua, his entire life, this is like this recurring, recurring theme in his life where God says, Joshua, I am with you, I am for you, and I will go before you in every single battle. And I just think that that is such a comforting promise to be aware of because God thinks the same way about us today. If we were up to God, if God were invited to every difficult situation in our life, I'm convinced that God's default plan for every single one of us is that he would go before us in every battle that we face. That he would be with us, he'd go before us, and he'd prepare us for what, what was ahead. And so those are the Levites. And that's the Ark of the Covenant. And that was the plan. Let them go first and we follow the rest. But then Joshua begins to prepare the heart of the people. And this is what he says in verse 5. It says, Then Joshua told the people, Purify yourselves, for tomorrow the Lord will do great wonders among you. He's preparing their hearts. He's telling them to get their hearts ready for what God is about to do in their life. And as you read through Scripture, you begin to notice that there's sort of, there's sort of a pattern for all of this. And the pattern is that there's a relationship between purity and God's movement in the world. And it works either one of two ways. Oftentimes, God does not release a blessing into our life if we are not prepared to receive that blessing. And sometimes that lack of preparation just means that we are out there doing our own thing, living our own lives, doing whatever we want, and not really paying attention to God's path for our life. And sometimes we never receive the blessing because our hearts are not ready to receive what God has for us. But there's another, another way that it works. And this is, this is mostly true most of the time. And that is that God is still working in powerful ways in our life. 
But the problem is that oftentimes when we are caught up in our own sin, when we are distracted with a different way of life, we don't even see what God is doing right in front of us. We can't see the blessing. And so Joshua says, do not miss out on what God is about to do in your life. And I think that most of us, if we're being honest, there are probably seasons in our life where we realize because we were not living in like this faithful obedience to what God was trying to do, we missed out on an opportunity. And so Joshua's saying, don't do that. Get your hearts right. Prepare for what God has right in front of you. Verse 6, then it says, in the morning Joshua said to the priest, lift up the Ark of the Covenant and lead the people across the river. And so they started out, they went ahead of the people, and then the Lord told Joshua, today I will begin to make you a great leader in the eyes of all the Israelites. They will know that I am with you just as I was with Moses. The more I read about Joshua's life, the more I have admiration for him. And what's interesting about Joshua is he doesn't get nearly the credit that Moses did. All right, Moses has movies that were made after him. Okay, books were written about him. Pictures were drawn of Moses and the parting of the Red Sea. What do we do about Joshua? We name a few of our kids after him, okay? We got some Joshua's in the house. He don't get much love, and it's interesting because Joshua is like one of the unique, one of the unique characters and leaders in the Bible. Almost every other leader and spiritual influencer that we see all throughout Scripture had some huge moral failing in their life. David committed uh, adultery. Moses struggled with with uh, uh, anger. Uh, we had uh, uh, the Apostle Paul, who was a murderer. But when you look at the life of Joshua, maybe more than any other person in the Bible, he shows us what it looks like to live a victorious life in God to like live in God and never go back to the things that have corrupted our path in the past. And, uh, and I'm looking at Joshua's life, and it is just a slow walk of obedience, week after week, month after month, year after year, decade after decade. And all he does, this is his whole process, I go to God, I hear what he tells me, I tell the people, I help them, orchestrate the plan, I lead the priest, I direct the officers, I communicate with the people, and he does this year after year. And all of Joshua's life, up until this point, is, is, is coordinating all of these different aspects to this one moment, this one act of faith that every person in this community will have to be a part of. And, and this is the, the challenge, is Joshua does not know how it's gonna work out. Have you guys ever planned an event and you didn't require an RSVP, and you didn't know who was gonna show up, right? And you're, and you're just sitting there until the start time, hoping that someone comes to your kid's birthday party, okay? Hoping that someone, someone shows up. If you had ever led an Eden group, you know what that's like, okay? You see all those people laughing? All right, it's not funny the, the, the few days leading up, and you don't have anyone who signed up for your group, okay? Because for months, you have been planning. You got the curriculum ready. You found a date, you wrote a little blurb to go on the packet, you took a picture, your best picture, and you put it on the website. And then the night comes and, and you don't know if anyone is gonna show up. And I just think about all the volunteers who are part of this community who are amazing, is that every week that's what they do. They get the coffee ready, they, they put the cones out, they get the signs out, they, they put the tables out, they set up, and, and we don't know every week if someone's going to show up, but they do it in faith, believing that God is going to compel people to step into this place. 
I remember one time we, uh, we, told every, we told everybody we were having baptisms and nobody signed up for baptisms. And everybody's like, well, should we still fill the water, which is a laborious process. Usually it, it short circuits our entire electrical system here. And we said, do, do we do that if there's nobody planning to get baptized? And, uh, and it was a question of faith. And I'm going to tell you, I have faltered on this before. I, there, in the past, I said, no, we're not setting up. Nobody signed up. We're not setting up. <laughs> but, um, but on this particular day, we said, we're going to set up. And we're going to act in faith. And we're going to trust that God's going to move in some people's hearts. And they're going to take that step. And they're going to go public with their faith. And that day, we had the single largest uh, baptism in the history of our church. We had, I think, six or seven people that got baptized. But that's so much the calling of a leader is that you are acting as if what is not true is true. And that was Joshua's life for 40 years, 60 years, 70 years, 80 years, acting, acting faithful. And in the middle of all this, as Joshua is leading other people, God gives him a word of encouragement. And the text doesn't really go into detail about why God spoke these specific words over Joshua, but it wouldn't be outside the, the realm of possibility for us to think that maybe there were some people who were questioning Joshua's leadership. It's not outside the bounds of reality to think that there were probably some people who said, well, Joshua doesn't do it like Moses. <laughs> there were probably some people who said, well, I don't like Joshua's communication style. He's a little mean. <laughs> Moses, listen to us better. But this is what God said. He said, Joshua, today will finally be the day that people see that you are a great leader. And they're going to see that my hand is on you and they will see that I am with you in the same way that I was with Moses. And so we get to this moment, verse 14, it says, So the people left their camp to cross the Jordan. And the priests who were carrying the Ark of the Covenant went ahead of them. Verse 15, it was, har it was the harvest season and the Jordan was overflowing its banks. But as soon as the feet of the priests who were carrying the ark touched the water at the river's edge, the water above that point began backing up a great distance away at a town called Adam, which is near Zarethan. And the water below that point flowed onto the Dead Sea until the riverbed was dry. And then all the people crossed over near the town of Jericho. God led them into this impossible situation. And he proved himself faithful again. Just like he said he would. And God used this moment to build their faith. And in the same way that he parted the Red Sea for their parents, the previous generation, he parted the Jordan River for the next generation. And this is what I think, as much as this was a moment where God was encouraging Joshua and reminding him that he would be there for Joshua, he was also reminding the people that he was with them too. And this is what we learn is that God is willing to use anyone who trusts him. My youth pastor back in the day said, he don't, God doesn't care about your ability, he cares about your availability. That God does not equip the called, he calls those who will, no, God doesn't call the equipped, he equips those who will be called. Some, you might not even know, I should have just went with it. But God used them. He used them because they were motivated. And we may ask the question, why were they such a motivated group of people? Because so far we didn't get any sense that any one of them were complaining about the plan to walk into this fast-flowing, heavy current river. Why were they so motivated? They were motivated because they saw 
what happens to a generation of people who were no longer willing to trust God. They saw what happened. They saw the bickering. They saw the fighting. They saw the disunity. They saw the bloodshed. They saw that without God at the center of your life, it has no real purpose. They saw their parents wandering through life for 40 years, struggling, and they didn't want any part of it. And finally, they got to the point where they just didn't care. They said, God, we don't care where you're going to lead us. All we know is that without you, life without you is not worth it. And so wherever you take us, wherever you guide us, wherever you direct us, God, we've already put our yes on the table. We will do it. In the Old Testament, there was this season of time where God was watching his people destroy themselves. And he asked the question, who can I send to be a messenger to these people because nobody was listening. And Isaiah, the prophet in chapter six, verse eight said, here I am, send me, God. I'm willing to go. Whatever it costs, wherever you want me to be, I'm ready, I'm ready to go. And that's exactly the same posture that the Israelites had with God today. They said, I'm ready. And when God saw that they were ready to receive the blessing, he allowed for them to experience the miracle. It says that as soon as the wa- their feet touched the water, it began to recede in this miraculous moment. And the beautiful part is that God is willing to fulfill his vision in any generation that is willing to submit their hearts to him. The beauty of this is that God is willing to work in every single generation. Every generation, God is willing. The problem most times is that we are not. We talk about wanting to see God move in a unique way, but when it comes down to what it would require our part to see God move in that way, most of us are not willing to do it. And what we've probably noticed that over the last hundred years, we've seen like this slow and steady decline in our culture, distancing ourselves from God. And so it's no surprise that when we have an entire culture that has moved farther and further away from God, that we would see the types of things that we're seeing in our world today. The second thing we learn is that life, life is a test. God could have made it easy. God could have allowed for this to be like some smooth moment where he pulled all the trees and the rocks together to create a bridge over the river, but he didn't do that. And we got to ask ourselves, why? Why did God require their faith? God required their faith because the only way to have deep and rich, meaningful faith is to test your faith. I signed my kids up for wrestling a few years ago. Didn't work out, okay? Didn't work out. Uh, Weren't ready for it, okay? They got, they got, we said, the way we say, they got mopped up by some other kids and didn't want to hurt their, uh, their confidence, so we got, and this is no offense, I'm about to say something, not to, to be offensive, then we got them into judo, okay? <laughs> so I'm not saying judo was easier, but it was easier. So we got them into judo, and they loved it. They loved it until the coach said, hey, we have a tournament coming up. Who wants to, who wants to go into the tournament and actually practice the things that, uh, do the things you've been practicing? And my kids were not for it, okay? There is a difference between practicing something 
and then putting it to the test to see if it actually works. The battles that you face in your life are a test. The trials that you experience are a test. The drama that God allows for you to go through in your life is a test to put what you say you believe about God, to, to, to test whether or not what you say believe, you believe about God is actually what you believe. James chapter 1, verse uh, 2 and 3, he says, Dear brothers and sisters, when troubles of any kind come your way, consider it an opportunity for great joy. For you know that when your faith is tested, your endurance has a chance to grow. That is how God grows your faith. 1 Peter chapter 1, verse 7 says, These trials will show you that your faith is genuine. It is being tested as a fire test and purifies gold, though your faith is far more precious than mere gold. So when your faith remains strong through many trials, it will bring you much praise and glory and honor. And on the day when Jesus Christ is revealed to the world, your life is a test. And God is building up your endurance and he's allowing for, allowing for your character to grow in the process. And God was using these moments in the lives of this community to grow their faith. It was a stepping stone for the children of Israel in preparation for what God was, going, was, God was going to show them in the coming years. And what we're learning is that the only way to build your faith in life is by taking one step at a time saying, God, I'm willing to trust you with a little bit more. God, I've allowed for you to speak into my, relation, my relational life but now I'm going to let you speak into my career. God, I've allowed for you to speak into my career, but now I'm going to let you speak into my finances. God, I've allowed you to speak in my finances. Now I'm going to let you speak into the pain that I've experienced in the past. That, that is the journey of the Christian life is season after season. God, I am going to trust you with a little bit more. That is how we grow. And over the course of a lifetime, these are little small building blocks that God takes you on this journey where you get to see him show up in more and faithful, powerful ways throughout the course of your life. Your life is a test. And God will use the test to give you a testimony. You know, growing up as an Israelite child, you would have had this long series of stories that your parents and your grandparents would have told you. And the stories would have, would have gone something like this. Kids, you would not believe how faithful Yahweh has been to us. At one point in our not so distant past, he parted the Red Sea and an entire community of people walked through. It was miraculous. And you would have story after story just like that of how God had been so faithful in your people's past. And the challenge for the children of Israel was to think that what God did in the past was based on their faith today. And you may have met people and you asked them about their spiritual journey and maybe you say, well, you know, how long have you been a Christian? And their response is, well, my parents are Christians. And in their mind, because their parents are Christians, that was enough for their own faith, but that's not how it works. Every person in every generation has to make a decision for themselves if they will choose to be faithful with what God has placed in front of them. When I was 13 years old, I was sitting in a crowd of people and I was at this conference for, for high schoolers. 
And I remember the, they had this band, it was called the Widow's Might, such a 1990s band, the Widow's Might. And the bass player for the band was sharing his, his testimony and he was talking about how God had worked in all these unique, miraculous ways to bring him to this point where he was ready to trust in God. And I remember being so moved as a 13-year-old kid hearing what he was sharing about his testimony that, that based on what he told me, I decided to take a step of faith for myself. And so what we know is that the process of growing in our faith is based on, in the beginning, other people's testimony. But at some point, you have to trust God through obedience in your life. Because you can start on someone else's testimony, but that will not take you where you need to go. God tested them to give them a testimony. So they could tell stories not just about what their parents did, but what God has done in their life. But the last thing that we see is that God is faithful. That, that is Joshua's story. If there, was, if there was a movie written and produced about Joshua's life, it would be titled, The God Who Is Faithful. Or The God Who Shows Up. Or The God Who Is There. Because in every season, God went before Joshua. And the beauty of Joshua's faith is that not for one second did he ever question whether or not God would show up again. And isn't that the challenge for us? Is that it seems like we can look back at our life and we can identify a few key seasons of life where our faith seemed so alive and our relationship with God seemed so real. And the passion wasn't just between what was happening between us and God, but it was overflowing in our life and the way that we lived. And, and there were these moments where God was moving so powerfully, but we compare that to where we are today and it seems like two different worlds, two different lives. And the breakdown for most of us is that somewhere along the way, we just weren't sure if we could keep trusting that God was gonna show up again. We weren't sure if we had the faith to believe that God was gonna step into this situation that seemed beyond what we were capable of overcoming. But like the Israelites, like your life, like this church, there's too much, there's too much history of God's faithfulness of showing up over and over and over again. And this is the power of this story is that whenever we read the Bible and we see how God behaved and acted toward his people, God does not change. That is his heart for us today. And there are some of you that are walking into this room, that have walked into this space, and you are in a season of life where you are facing an obstacle. And the tension for you right now is will I choose to be faithful in obedience to what God has called me to do or will I default to some old patterns that most of the time feel more comfortable, they're definitely more familiar, but they're also the path that leads you back to where you were before. This morning, I know that there are some of us that have come into this place and we, have, we just feel lost. We feel distant from God. We've allowed for certain habits to creep back in. Maybe you're here today and you, you've just, you just never had that relationship with God. Today, I want to give you a chance.
to take that step of faith and cross the starting line of faith and begin a relationship, begin a relationship with him. And what you're doing today is you are, you're giving God a chance to, to prove that he is faithful in your life. You're giving God a chance to step into a place in your life that you do not have the power to control. And you get to see how he shows up over the course of the next few weeks, in the next few months, in the next few years. And so right now I'm going to ask everyone to go ahead and bow their heads and close their eyes. And this morning, if, if you are ready to begin a relationship with God, I want you to repeat this prayer after me in your heart. And every week we tell people there ain't anything special about the prayer, but it's whether or not this, these words reflect the desire of your heart to be in a relationship with a loving God who loves you deeply, who sees, who sees you where you are and wants you to know that you're not alone. If that's you this morning, you can repeat these words after me in your heart. Dear God, thank you for loving me the way that you do. Thank you for bringing me into this place this morning. Today I'm ready. I'm ready to trust that you loved me enough that you would send your son to die on the cross for my sins so that I wouldn't have to carry the weight of so many of the silly decisions that I've made in my life, the sinful decisions. Today I'm ready to step out of the old life and into the new, believing that you're with me and that you're for me. Would you give me the strength to follow you in the days to come? In Jesus' name, I believe. I'm going to ask you to keep your heads bowed and your eyes closed this morning. And for those of you who prayed that prayer in your heart, I'm going to ask you to take one more bold step of faith. And on the count of three, I'm just going to ask you to quickly raise your hand up. You don't have to keep it there long. Just quickly raise your hand up. And part of why we do this is because we know that when God is moving spiritually and we respond physically, it solidifies this moment in our life. And we pray every week that there would be people who step into this room ready to receive what God is doing in their life, opening their hearts for him. And so if that's you on the count of three, I'm gonna ask you to raise your hand. One, God loves you so much more than you could possibly know. Two, you have not been abandoned, but God sees you and he's for you and he's with you. Three, go ahead and raise your hand this morning if you prayed that prayer. I see you, 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 I see you. If you're tuning in online, I want to encourage you to go ahead and hit the button at the bottom of the screen. We have some, one of our hosts would love to get you more information to help you grow in your relationship with God. Father, we thank you that you're so faithful to us every single week as we go about our busy schedules. And God, we worry about so many things. And in the background, God, you're ready and willing to carry it all for us. Lord, I pray that as we go into this week, Lord, we would be people of bold faith. Not a double-minded faith, but a confident faith that in every circumstance, God, you are with us and you go before us and you love us. We pray all this in Jesus' name. Amen.